Well, this morning we are going to continue our the sermon series in John, and we have come to John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And so, if you would, um, join me as we read this passage of Scripture together, John 1, 14 through 18. And as we read, remember, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. John 1, beginning in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. You know, it's providential, isn't it, that we've come to this passage in our study of John's gospel just a couple weeks before Christmas. And Christmas, of course, celebrates the birth of Christ. And John 1.14 is one of the classic descriptions of that great event. However, we all know that the meaning of Christmas has been pushed out of the mind of most people. Because it is a holiday, uh, people are anticipating food and family and fun. Because it is a holiday that has been commercialized, it's easy for people to be distracted by things like shopping for presents. And because it has been secularized, Jesus' birth has been replaced in many people's minds by Santa Claus and Jingle Bells and elves and reindeer. Now, amidst all of this, even Christians who are trying to maintain the original meaning of Christmas as a Christian holiday um, often focus mainly on the details of the stories of Jesus' birth that are recorded for us in Matthew and Luke. So we tend to think mainly of a stable in Bethlehem and angels singing to shepherds and wise men following a star, all of which are wonderful and important. However, what is sometimes lost sight of in the midst of all of it is the significance of Jesus' birth. And that's where our text is so helpful because that's what it's all about. Rather than telling us how Jesus' birth took place in history, like Matthew and Luke, John 1, 14 through 18 explains to us what it meant. It takes a deep dive into the significance of the central event that we're celebrating at Christmas. Now, I want to walk through this text in four steps. So first, let's look at 14a, the first part of verse 14. And there we see that Jesus is God dwelling among us. 
John tells us that Jesus is God dwelling among us. Look again at what it says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, John had already introduced us to the word in verses one through three of the book. There he had said, in the beginning was the word and the word was God was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So there you see the word is described as already existing in in the beginning when the universe was created. Indeed the word must be uncreated because all things were created through him. And this is explained when the word is identified as God, though somehow also with God in the beginning. And this is because as the rest of the New Testament unpacks further, the one being God somehow exists eternally in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are each simultaneously in relation to one another. The Word, as is revealed in the second half of verse 14, is God the Son, who was with God the Father in the beginning. Now, given that, what John tells us about the word next is absolutely astounding. Though not unexpected, given what he had already said in verse six, in verse six, John said of the word that, quote, he was in the world that he had made. Now in verse 14, John explains how that happened. He says, the word became flesh. Now that word flesh, it's in this context a reference to human nature. So by saying the word became flesh, John is emphasizing that the word didn't just sort of clothe himself in a human body like a cloak, but actually human nature. In other words, God the Son became a true man. The man identified later in verse 17 as Jesus Christ. Then John went on to say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now this is far more provocative actually than it appears at first, especially as we read it in the English translation. Because starting here, an original reader of the Greek text would have begun to notice allusions. Allusions to events that were recorded in the Old Testament in Exodus 33 and 34. So for instance, that particular Greek word that's translated dwelt, it's actually the verbal form of a Greek word skenos, which referred to a temporary dwelling place. Indeed, skenos could be translated tent, or to use the older English word, tabernacle. In fact, there's a sense in which when John said, the word dwelt among us, 
that language so echoes the language of tabernacle that you could have said, the word became flesh and tabernacled, tented among us. What's more, these Greek words were the very words used in that Greek Old Testament that they were using, the Septuagint, to describe the tabernacle in which God had dwelt with his people in times past. So when John said, the word dwelt among us, that language echoed passages like Exodus 25, 8, 9, where the Lord had said to Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I have shown you the pattern of the tabernacle, there's the word, and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Except notice what John is saying then in verse 14 of our text. In times past, God dwelt among his people in a tent, in a tabernacle. The word, God the Son, has become flesh and dwelt among us. Now, in other words, the dwelling place of God's presence among his people is a human nature. God has taken up residence among us as the man, Jesus Christ. This is why, by the way, later on in chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus would provocatively stand before the physical temple in Jerusalem and he would say this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John explains in the next verse, he was speaking about the temple of his body. What the tabernacle, that old tent that God used to dwell in, and the temple that he lived in later on, what they had been under the old covenant, the place where God dwelt among his people, Jesus now fulfilled and superseded. His body was the true tabernacle, the true temple, because he was God. He was God become a man to dwell among his people, obviously in a more intimate and personal way than ever before. You know, as the ancient prophet Isaiah had said, in Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is why a few chapters later, Jesus would very strikingly tell the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Why? Because now, you see, those who would worship God the Father would come to Jesus Christ. Let's pause just to consider 
some things we need to learn from just this first part of verse 14. The first thing we need to learn is a point of Christian doctrine. The text reminds us of the truth that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. The more specific doctrinal formulation, which is really derived from not just this text, but the teaching of the New Testament as a whole, is that the one person, Jesus, has two natures. He fully possesses the one divine nature, but he also has added to that a complete human nature with both a human body and a human soul. And these two natures of Jesus, his divine nature and his human nature, they're not mixed together so that they become something neither divine or human, but something else. Rather, they're always distinct, but they never exist apart from each other. They're always united in the one person, Jesus. Some Christians have coined the term hypostatic union. All right, see, now you know what that is. It, that's a term that refers to this package of truths about Jesus. And as abstract as that might sound, these truths about Jesus are actually essential to the Christian faith. To deny these truths is to deny the Christian faith as taught in Scripture and to embrace heresy. Now, if you didn't know those truths or you couldn't articulate them perfectly, that doesn't make you a heretic. But if you know what they teach and you reject them and say, that cannot be, that's heresy. You know, you might not be aware of all the old heresies like Arianism and Nestorianism and Apollinarianism and Eutychianism, all of which attack the Christian faith right at this point. You probably will be exposed to Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Unitarians, Muslims, all of which recycle the old heresies in new packaging. So we must understand this truth about Jesus. The word become flesh, the God man, one person with two natures, divine and human, and hold fast to it, both individually as a Christian and also as a church, lest we end up being led astray by the cunning of Satan into heresy. Second, we should learn to appreciate the profound blessing being described in this half of a verse, so that we could be filled with, as the old Christmas carol talks about, wonder and joy. You know, John is telling us that God has made his dwelling among us as his new covenant people in a way that is far more intimate and far more personal than the way that he dwelt among his old covenant people in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. In the fullness of time, God entered into our world as a man, Jesus Christ, to live among us. He was born like us and developed like us. He had a human body and a human soul like us, only not corrupted by sin. He breathed air like us. 
He walked and ran upon the earth like us. He got hungry and thirsty like us. He got tired and he slept like us. He experienced the sufferings of human life in a fallen world like us. And eventually, he died just like all of us will. Indeed, God could not have come any closer to us than he did in Jesus. And this means Jesus, the God-man, while he is different from us in his divinity, yet he is like us in his humanity, so that he could represent us in his life like Adam did in the garden, that he might obey God perfectly on our behalf, whereas Adam had disobeyed. And so that he could be our substitute, a man for men. And take our place at the cross and be our sin bearer and pay the penalty for our sins in full. And so that even now, having risen from the dead and ascended into heaven in, by the way, his human body, his tomb is empty. Jesus continues think of it, to relate to us through his human nature as a man filled with compassion and understanding, able to sympathize with our weakness, interceding perfectly and permanently before God the Father as our, as the writer of Hebrews said, merciful and faithful high priest who can plumb the depths of that blessing. That we, as fallen human beings on earth, through the incomprehensible goodness of God, should receive such a gift dwelt among us. But third, if this is true, and it is, if Jesus is God with us, and he is, such that his body is the true temple, surpassing and replacing the tabernacle and the temple of times past. Well, do you see what that means? Then that means that any human being who desires to worship their creator must come to him through Jesus. He is, as D.A. Carson has put it, the great meeting place between God and man. As Paul so famously put it to Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. To try and worship God, do you see, apart from Jesus, it's a dead end. You will never reach God that way because God does not give us that option. Indeed, he prohibits it as idolatry. But think of it this way. He has graciously provided one way to him through the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Through Jesus and Jesus alone, finite and sinful human beings have access to God. You can be forgiven of your sin and reconciled to God 
through his death on the cross. You can be born again and enter eternal fellowship with God through his resurrection from the dead. All you must do is believe in Jesus as the Son of God, to trust in him to save you from your sins. So first, John tells us that Jesus is God dwelling among us in the first part of verse 14. Second, John tells us that Jesus reveals God's glory to us. That's the rest of verse 14. Jesus reveals God's glory to us. So look at what it says. And, so the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now here again, I think, Exodus 33 and 34 most likely lies in the background of John's statements here. D.A. Carson explains it this way. He says, in the Septuagint, remember that's the Greek Old Testament, the word for glory, doxa in the Greek, commonly is used to translate kavod in the Hebrew, a word that was used to denote that visible manifestation of God's self-disclosure in some kind of theophany. And you'll remember that the Israelites saw a visible manifestation of God's glory in the form of a cloud, which initially had rested upon Mount Sinai and then hovered above them as they traveled through the wilderness and then filled the tabernacle whenever they stopped to set up camp. But you remember that. At a particular time, a time of great distress, after Israel had broken their covenant with God, while Moses had still been up on the mountain and he came down and found them worshiping a golden calf in Exodus 33, it tells us that Moses went back up onto Mount Sinai to intercede for Israel, to plead with the Lord that his presence would not depart from them. And while he was on the mountain, Moses cried out to the Lord in verse 18 saying, Please show me your glory. So the Lord put Moses in a cleft of a rock and caused his glory to pass by him there. And while Moses would not be allowed to see God's face because God says, man shall not see me and live, the Lord would take away his hand as he passed by and allow Moses to see his back, it says. Now, whatever that meant, and it is somewhat mysterious, isn't it? Moses had asked for and been allowed to see some manifestation of God, the glory of God on Mount Sinai. It was unprecedented in the Old Testament. You remember, this is why when he came down, he had to wear a veil. And with all of that in the background, the Lord dwelling among his old covenant people in the tabernacle, Moses seeing the glory of God on Mount Sinai, John, after saying the word has become flesh and tabernacled among us in a human nature, he goes on to say, and we have seen his glory. In other words, we, who's that? That is 
John, his fellow believers, we Christians who have come to believe in Jesus Christ, we have seen in him a manifestation of the glory of God. Only just as Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God dwelling with his people, do you see? So also we see in him an ultimate manifestation of the glory of God. That old glory cloud had nothing on Jesus. In Jesus Christ, the radiance of the holy character of the invisible God has been manifest for us in a full and final way. As it says of Jesus in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So we who behold Jesus with the eyes of faith, brothers and sisters, we have seen a greater display of God's glory in Jesus Christ than even Moses saw on the mountain in Exodus 34. But why, you might ask, is Jesus such a perfect manifestation of God's glory? Do you remember what it said way back in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3 about Adam? It said, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So there we're told that Seth bore something of the image and the likeness of his father, Adam. And that's true of every child, isn't it? They look something like their parents. Well, now John tells us that the glory we see in Jesus Christ, the word become flesh to dwell among us, is Glory as of the only Son from the Father. In other words, just as earthly children reflect the likeness of their parents in a limited way, Jesus reflects the likeness of God the Father in a perfect way because he is the only Son, the unique Son from the Father. Indeed, Jesus is the eternal divine Son of God. God the Son in relationship to God the Father from all eternity. And as such, he manifests the glory of his Father without limitation or imperfection. You know, this is why John, Jesus could stand in front of his disciple Philip in John 14, and say, Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because as it says of him in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. But finally, what did the glory of God, which we've seen in Jesus Christ, what did it look like? John went into went on to explain something of it in verse 14, saying that it was full of grace and truth. 
Let me take you back to Exodus 34 for a second. We're told there what happened when the Lord revealed his glory to Moses in the cleft of the rock on Mount Sinai. Exodus 34 verse 6 says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So here is a description of the character of God who was passing before Moses. And in some ways, this description that Moses was hearing was more important than the manifestation that he was seeing. And at the heart of this description were the attributes of steadfast love and faithfulness. And those twin characteristics used to describe the glory of God revealed to Moses in Exodus 34 correspond roughly in meaning to the twin characteristics used to describe the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, grace and truth. Carson again explains the significance of this. He says, the glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name, displaying that divine goodness characterized by ineffable grace and truth, was the very same glory John and his friends saw in the Word made flesh. Of course, I would add the only difference is that in Jesus, we are seeing those things displayed in their fullness. Of course, it's critical to remember that John says, we have seen his glory. That is, he and those like him who have believed in Jesus, because when you read the rest of the book, right, you realize that many did not see the glory of God that was being perfectly displayed in Jesus Christ. For instance, the miracles, the seven signs, the seven miracles of Jesus that are described in the book are signs which reveal his glory. But only those who believed in him were able to see it. In fact, with respect to the first sign, the changing of water into wine at Cana, John 2.11 says this, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. But many Jews, like the Pharisees, were blind to the glory of Jesus being revealed in these signs because they refused to open their eyes and see it. They refused to believe in him. Or even more profoundly, the death of Jesus on the cross is described in John's gospel as the hour of his glory. It was the event through which his glory was displayed most fully of all. The word made flesh, God, become a man hanging on the cross, dying the death of a sinner. For us, the fullest display of his glory. And yet those who don't believe in him 
can see no glory in it. To use this imagery, the spectacles of faith, which God grants to the minds of sinners when he causes them to be born again of the Spirit, are what enable them to see the glory of God displayed in Jesus Christ. Faith. Those without the spectacles of faith, they're like Mr. Magoo's, blind men and women. The sun is high in the sky, but they live in darkness. They can't see it. Oh, may God give eyes to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ to everyone in this room. If you examine yourself and you realize you don't have it yet, pray, make it your urgent prayer that the Lord would give you that faith. But brothers and sisters, how glorious it is that we can count ourselves among the we whom John says have seen the glory of God full of grace and truth, which is perfectly displayed in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus has come along And looking upon our spiritual blindness, seeing that we were helpless to change our wretched condition, he has set his hand upon us and he has healed us of our blindness so that we can see his kind face and we can see that he's proclaiming to us, forgiven, adopted by my father. And we can know that as we look at him, we see in him a perfect reflection of the beauty of the holy character of God. And this is what has awakened love for him in our hearts. This is what has filled our lives with a new joy and a new peace, even amidst the sorrows and sufferings of life. Indeed, seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ with the eyes of faith that the Holy Spirit has birthed in our hearts, has begun to transform us, to sanctify us, so that our own character is being gradually transformed into the likeness of God that we behold in Jesus. 3.18, he said, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Indeed, brothers and sisters, understanding that, we should all be able to take that prayer of Moses on our lips and cry out to God, show me your glory in Jesus Christ, that we might see more of it. So second, John tells us that Jesus reveals God's glory to us in the rest of verse 14. Now third, in verses 16 and 17, John tells us that the grace which Jesus gives is given is greater than that which came before. The grace which Jesus gives is greater than that which came before. Verses 16 and 17. So in verse 16, John said this, For from his fullness 
we have all received grace upon grace. So, in the previous verse, John had described Jesus' glory as, quote, full of grace and truth. And now, do you see, he asserts that the fullness of grace, which is in Jesus Christ, has somehow spilled over into our lives who believe in him, so that we have received from his fullness grace, indeed, grace upon grace. Now, scholars have troubled over how to understand that phrase in your English. If you're using an ESV, it's translated grace upon grace. And the first problem they face is how to interpret the Greek text there. It could mean grace upon grace, like the ESV translates it. That would mean grace added to grace. Or it could mean grace for grace. That's how the old King James translated it. That's, it would mean grace in the place of grace. I wonder if the old King James has it right here. It's interesting that the new international version, it was revised, the TNIV. The translators opted for that meaning. They changed it from the original, from the, for the original meaning where they had opted for grace upon grace. They changed it to grace in the place of grace already given is how they rendered it. Now, one of the reasons that seems right to me is that I think John is explaining what he means in the next verse. Well, look what he says, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. That's what came before. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Now, it would make sense that he would compare and contrast Moses and Jesus here, right? Because his description of Jesus in the verses leading up to this, I would argue, have Exodus 33 and 34 in the background. He'd already been sort of alluding to those events. The question is, what contrast is he making between Moses and Jesus? Well, if this verse is indeed connected with the previous phrase, grace in the place of grace, well, then the contrast would be this. That it would be a contrast between the grace which God gave to Israel under the law, that is the old covenant, and the grace now given to believers through Jesus Christ. Grace for grace, grace in the place of grace. In other words, out of the fullness of Jesus, we who believe in him have received gracious blessings that replace the gracious blessings which God had given to Israel under the law, the old covenant. We have received grace in the place of grace already given. But John's implied point is that there's been an escalation here, that the grace we received in Christ is greater than the grace received through Moses. Now, if this interpretation is correct, then John's point is similar to that of the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 8, 6, where the writer had said, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So put it this way, the old covenant provided cleansing for the defilement of the flesh from ceremonial uncleanness through animal sacrifices. But the new covenant provides 
permanent cleansing for the conscience from sin through the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. The old covenant provided the law of God on tablets of stone. The new covenant provides the law of God written upon the heart by the regenerating work of the Spirit. The old covenant was a community in which believers like Elijah were always teaching unbelievers like Ahab, know the Lord. But in the new covenant, we have a community in the church in which everyone knows the Lord from the least to the greatest. Now, that way of understanding the text would fit naturally, I think, into the overall flow of the argument of the passage. John has been emphasizing that Jesus was the greater dwelling place of God than the tabernacle and a greater display of God's glory than that which Moses saw on Mount Sinai. And now he says that Jesus provides the greater grace than that which was given through the law. Consider Christian. These greater blessings, which John says we have received from Christ's fullness, he describes as grace. That means you don't deserve them. We have received them as a gift. You know, it's common among us as fallen human beings in our pride and our self-centeredness to think, you know, if God does exist, well then, somehow he owes us blessings. Surely he ought to reveal himself to us if he's really there, we think. Or if we really are headed to hell, well then I suppose God should certainly try and save us. Oh, how woefully misguided we are as fallen human beings. Surely when we stand before God on the day of judgment, we are going to put our hands over our mouths like Job. And at least then we will know that all human beings, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, will bow the knee to God and to his son, Jesus Christ, and acknowledge he owed nothing to them who had rebelled against him so terribly other than judgment. So we who have received the blessings of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, we ought to recognize and acknowledge with humility and gratitude that we have received them all as gifts of grace, free, undeserved favor. So that all the glory in our redemption, you see, is just going to be ascribed to the goodness of God and not to anything in us. Remember the old psalmist said, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. May that be the song of the church. For we have received in Christ from his fullness grace in the place of grace. So third, in verses 16 and 17, John tells us that the grace of God which Jesus gives is greater than that which came before. But finally, fourth, John tells us that Jesus reveals the invisible God in verse 18. Jesus reveals the invisible God, verse 18. So verse 18, if you look there, it says again, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now when John says, no one has ever seen God, 
He's reflecting a truth taught throughout the Bible, namely that God is a spirit and therefore he is invisible. So Colossians 1.15, uh, 1 Timothy 1.17, for instance, they both explicitly declare that God is invisible. So while God has indeed portrayed himself through various visible manifestations like the glory cloud, which guided Israel and filled the tabernacle. Yet, when you're looking at that, you're not looking directly at God, are you? Human beings cannot see God in some kind of direct way. God is spirit. And this is a theme that John actually reiterates again and again, multiple times in this gospel and also in his letters. John uses the phrase, quote, No one has ever seen God. However, given the fact that John seems to have Exodus 33, 34 in the background of everything that he's been saying since verse 14, it may be, perhaps it's likely, that he's once again alluding to Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. Because there, Moses had appealed to God. He said, Please show me your glory. And God had responded, you remember, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So then even Moses, who was allowed to see some manifestation of God's glory that was unlike any human being had had on Mount Sinai, he was not able to see God directly But then John makes the astounding claim that there is one who has seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. This is clearly a reference to Jesus. In verse 14, John had called him the only son from the Father. Son is implied. Here he calls him the only God Monogenes Theos, the only God who is at the Father's side. That's a clear affirmation of the deity of God. It calls him God, but, it's, but also that he is a distinct divine person in relation to God the Father. He is at the Father's side. That phrase, who is at the Father's side, It's the phrase used of John when he reclined on the chest of Jesus at the Lord's Supper or at the Last Supper. It communicates the intimate nature of this relationship between God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Father. Other translations, I think, capture this better. The New American Standard translates it, who is in the bosom of the Father. The New American, New International Version translates it, who is close to the Father's heart. In other words, what John is saying here is that as the unique Son of God, Jesus has uniquely intimate relationship with God the Father. He has seen God. He is at the Father's side. Indeed, he knows the Father perfectly within that communion of the persons within the triune Godhead. The idea then 
is that while no mere human being has ever seen God directly, nor will they, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is the one who has. Jesus said this of himself later on in John 6, 46. He said, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus alone, out of all humanity, has firsthand intimate knowledge of God because he is the Word who was with God in the beginning, who was God. And then he's become flesh and dwelt among us. And that truth, you see, it sets the stage for the last line of the prologue. After saying that no one has ever seen God among men and saying that the only God who is at the Father's side implied he has seen him, look what he goes on to say. He has made him known. That phrase, he has made him known, it's a phrase that just translates one word in the Greek. Exegetomai. We get the term exegesis from that Greek word. In fact, one commentator says, from this Greek term, we derive exegesis. We might almost say that Jesus is the exegesis of God. Elsewhere in the New Testament, that verb means to tell a narrative or to narrate. In that sense, we might say that Jesus is the narration of God. To put it simply... Jesus, out of his firsthand knowledge of, the, of God the Father, has now revealed him to us fully, whom we have never seen. What even Moses could not see, Jesus has made known to us. Now, what does that mean practically, though? It means to know Jesus is to know God, to see Jesus' character is to see the character of God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the exact imprint of his nature. To hear the words of Jesus is to hear the words of God. John 7.16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. To see the works of Jesus is to see the works of God. John 10.37 and 38. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. When Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us, Jesus replied, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But conversely, it means... To reject Jesus is to reject God. Luke 10, 16, the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Do you see, Jesus makes available what no human being can attain on his own. Firsthand, at least derivatively, knowledge of God. You can't know God through the exercise of your own reason, like the ancient philosophers thought that they could sort of reason their way to accessing God. 
nor can you go out into the desert and bring crystals or pursue God directly through some kind of mystical experience. You can't know God through other people or through books which claim to have received revelation from him apart from the Bible and from Jesus. There is only one, the only God, who is at the Father's side, who has firsthand knowledge of God. And the good news that we have here is he has become flesh and he has dwelt among us so that he might make God known to us in fullness and in truth. So if you want to know God, come to Jesus. As Jesus put it in John 14, 6, famously, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Christians, we've been given the true knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. It's the most precious gift that God has given us. Did you know that? Every other gift is for this gift. You are forgiven and adopted so that you might know God. John 17, 3, Jesus prayed, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But brothers and sisters, this knowledge, it's it's deeper than the ocean. It's more vast and expansive than the heavens and into space. There's always more to take in. So, pursue more of it. With all your might, it's the most important thing you can do in life. Seek to know God more through Jesus Christ. Never stop trying to know Jesus better. He's revealed to us in the scripture. Study it, meditate upon the word where Christ is revealed to us. Pray for God to open the eyes of your heart so that you would grasp more about him. As Peter put it in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has made God known to us. Well, in conclusion, the Christmas holiday, it's almost here. And during that holiday, we celebrate the birth of Christ. I hope this morning... As we come to the end of John's prologue to his gospel, verses 1 through 18, you've gained a greater appreciation for the significance of that event that we are going to be celebrating. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of this passage of Scripture, but not just the Scripture itself, but what it reveals to us truths that we would never even dare to claim and you have revealed them that they are true to think that the word became flesh and dwelt among us we have seen his glory we thank you for the knowledge of yourself O God through the son Jesus who has united himself to a human nature 
to be our mediator forever. Who has died for our sins and risen again for our justification. Oh Lord, these things are truly beyond our full comprehension and yet we know them truly and we want to know them more deeply. Please give us a greater knowledge of your glory in Jesus. Please show us your glory, we pray in his name. Amen.